Welcome to the GW Business of Sports podcast. We talk about sports, careers, mentors, leadership, and a lot more here. And we do the show from the Foggy Bottom Campus in Washington, D.C. I'm Mark Hyman, professor in the Business of Sports program at GW. My producer is Henry Levy. Brad Snyder visited campus recently. Brad is professor at the Georgetown University Law School, where he teaches constitutional law and sports law. Brad also is the author of a terrific sports book, A Well-Paid Slave, the largely untold story of Kurt Flood, the star St. Louis Cardinals outfielder and social activist who paved the way for something we take for granted in sports today, free agency. So, in honor of the start of another baseball season, here's my conversation with Brad. Brad, welcome to GW. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. Well, we're, we're very pleased to have you. Um, you're here today speaking about one of my favorite sports books of all time, A Well-Paid Slave. Um, I wanted to ask you how the project came about. I, I don't think you ever saw... Kurt Flood play a major league game, and and I don't think you ever met him. I never met him. I never, definitely never saw him play a game. He retired before I was born. Um, but in, in 1994, in June, I started as a cub reporter at the Baltimore Sun, a paper you know very well. And um, just a few weeks into my time there, the baseball strike started, and I thought I was going to be writing sidebars at Oriole games, and instead I started covering congressional hearings and talking to senators like Howard Metzenbaum and Mike DeWine and other people about you know, repealing baseball's antitrust exemption. And there were all these hearings on the Hill. And I just started learning about the history of baseball's antitrust exemption and came across Flood's story. During that summer of 94, in fact, um, Kurt Flood spoke at a meeting of the Players Association, the current, that in 94, that iteration of players, and basically received a standing ovation. I think it was in Atlanta. And he basically told the players to stay strong and to hold their ground. And um, This was during a, a protracted player strike. Yeah, that or, that, or that, that ended, right. It was a strike. The players went strike. on strike um, in August, early August of 1994. Right, Tony Gwen at the time was hitting... Uh, 394. It was the closest um, anybody has come to hitting 400. Um, all that ended. There was no postseason, nothing. And so everything turned into sort of strike mode and learning about baseball's history of labor disputes, both strikes and lockouts and the antitrust exemption. And, and that's when Flood spoke to the you know, assembled players in Atlanta. And I, I started reading about his story and I I really thought that Kurt's story was much like a book that I was reading at the time. I mean, it was a book about a famous uh, Supreme Court case called Gideon's Trumpet, where um, um, an, an inmate named Clarence Earl Gideon had been convicted of a petty theft, and he had, hand, he had handwritten a petition to the Supreme Court of the United States to hear his case. And the Supreme Court took the case, which it rarely does, in sort of um, what they call in form of pauperous cases, but are basically like poor prisoner cases, and, and, and they assigned Gideon a lawyer, Abe Fortas, um, who, who eventually became a Supreme Court justice himself. Fortas argued Gideon's case at the Supreme Court, and, and 
Gideon didn't have any counsel when he was convicted of this petty theft. And um, Fort, Fortis um, basically won um, Gideon a new trial and a right to counsel in all felony cases for, for all time. And, and I saw Gideon's case as sort of a one man takes on the establishment story and, and Flood took his case and uh, the issue of baseball's reserve clause all the way up to the Supreme Court. And I, I thought Flood's story was sort of baseball's version of Gideon's trumpet. And, you know, my great regret during that summer was not sort of reaching out to Flood, right, and not trying to track him down, um, not trying to interview him. Uh, you know, I wish I'd just, you know, convinced our editor at the time, you know, fly me down to Atlanta and let me at least witness um, that event. Um, what discouraged me from doing it and shouldn't have discouraged me was um, uh, David Halberstam wrote the book um, October 1964. Um, it was about the uh, two World Series teams that year, the Yankees, um, who were mostly white, and the Cardinals, um, who had a really intelligent, sort of multiracial um, collection of players. And, um, and he sort of contrasted the two teams. And he talked to almost every player on both teams. And the only one of the few people, maybe the only person who wouldn't talk to David Halberstam um, was Kurt Flood because he said he wanted to make his life into a movie. And I sort of figured at the time, well, if Kurt Flood um, wouldn't talk to David Halberstam, who um, was one of the greatest um, journalists of all time and Pulitzer Prize winner, he certainly wasn't going to talk to me, um, cub reporter for the Baltimore Sun. But it was a mistake. Um, I, I wish I had sort of reached out to him because... Um, you know, less than three years later, Kurt Flood was dead of throat cancer. So I want to talk a little bit about your career path, which I think is is really interesting and um, one that um, I, I think students can learn from and, and, if not emulate, certainly learn from. Um, but before we do that, you mentioned that Kurt Flood had become kind of a heroic figure to Major League players by 1994, but, but that was not the case when this lawsuit was being contemplated. Why was that, and how did players feel about Flood's lawsuit at the time? I, you know, it's, it's hard to sort of transport ourselves back into um, sort of October of 1969 when Flood was traded, and, and even a few months later when he um, addressed um, a meeting of the player representatives in Puerto Rico, um, who um, all voted unanimously to back his decision in, to, to sue and, and agreed to fund his lawsuit. Um, but the player representatives were sort of the most mobilized members of the union, right? And um, so they were the ones who were in the most contact with Marvin Miller, who was the head of the union and sort, sort of was the most, were the most educated players about labor management relations. And even they had some reservations about um, flood suit. Tom Haller, um, who was playing the player representative for the San Francisco Giants, um, asked flood at the meeting, whether the lawsuit was a was a black power thing, and, and Flood said, "No, it's not a black power thing. It's a, you know, it's a players' rights thing, right?" And um, and you know, Howler voted unanimously with everyone else. But there was really, it's hard to imagine the owners had so much power over the players, uh, because um, at that time, if you spoke out against um, an owner or if you did something controversial, you were traded, and you just had no control. And there was just a culture of fear all across baseball. Um, you know, sort of around that time period, um, Frank Robinson was traded um, in 72. Um, Willie Mays um, was traded um, in the early 70s. Uh, Hank Aaron was traded. Um, Joe Torrey um, was traded by um, Paul Richards for union activity from the Atlanta Braves to the St. Louis Cardinals. So, so really no one 
um, was untradeable um, in, in those days. And, and it, in fact, the most opposed players to Kurt's lawsuit were the stars because the stars were sort of the most well taken care of. Right? They were so under the thumb of their owners that, that they were the ones who had been sort of brainwashed the most into thinking that the system as it was without free agency was the only way that baseball could operate. Let's talk a little bit about you. So uh, at one point in your career, you had taken a vow of poverty and, and were thinking about becoming a, a sports writer. Um, and then apparently you saw the light and decided that uh, you wanted to get a, a legitimate career and decided to go to law school. Can you tell us about that period in your life and what, what was happening that, that led you in that direction? Well, I, I think the first thing, you know, and this is a not, um, this is a, a brutally honest view is that like, I wasn't made to be a baseball writer who um, writes on deadline um, when the game's over at 11.30 and you have to have the story filed um, by midnight and you file right at, at when the game's over, then you file again at midnight, and then you file a file story. My stories were often a mess. Right? It just, it, I, I felt like I wasn't, um, I wasn't good at it. I didn't ever think I was going to get really good at it, and I didn't really enjoy um, that, um, that sort of stress of deadlines. I much preferred uh, the job that you had, Mark, um, which was doing investigative s- stories and spending you know, several weeks or months you know, working on um, a story about sports business or um, investigating the Maryland basketball team. That was fun uh, for me. Uh, but but I, I, just, I didn't feel like I was using all of my skill set. And I, I think the moment that it sort of crystallized for me um, that I wasn't using my skill set was um, when I, after the baseball season was over, um, I rotated into the Washington Bureau and there was a sports case um, before the Supreme Court involving a um, practice squad football player um, named Anthony Brown. And um, his case um, was argued on behalf of the NFL Players Association by Ken Starr, um, who was the same Ken Starr um, who wrote um, the infamous report about um, Bill Clinton. Well, he represented the Players Union, and a lawyer from Covington um, represented um, the league. I'd never been to a Supreme Court argument before, um, but once I saw it, I knew um, that I wanted to, to be associated with that. I thought that, that, that after I saw that Supreme Court argument um, that I really wanted to write about the Supreme Court um, for a living as a, and possibly as a journalist. And I knew the only way I was going to do it effectively was to go to law school. So that was really kind of a game changer for me. And then what happened? Yeah. Uh, then, as often happens in law school, um, you know, I was you know, a little bit seduced um, by um, some of the prizes of law school. Uh, you know, I... I spent a summer at a law firm here in Washington, Williams and Connolly, and then I clerked um, for a federal judge um, after graduation on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, and then I then I um, and then I took time uh, to write my first book, um, which was really my college thesis about a black baseball team called the Homestead Grays um, that played the Negro Leagues and played here in Washington during the 1940s, and I sort of ran out of money after I wrote the first draft of the book, and and I. I knew the way, what place I could make the money easiest was at a law firm, so I went there, sort of out of default. It really wasn't well thought out. After a few years at the law, and, I, and I, the reason why I chose Williams & Connolly, it's a great litigation firm, but they represented a lot of newspapers and magazines. 
and defended them in libel suits and First Amendment, you know, stood up for their First Amendment rights. And I thought that would satisfy my sort of journalistic itch. And it didn't. And um, uh, I got ready to leave after a little less than three years. And one of the partners there, whom I, I still consider a friend, said, um, and, I, and I wanted to leave to go write this book about Kurt Flood. And uh, one of the partners there said, don't leave to write this book. He said, if you leave to write this book, everyone will, be con will consider you a dilettante. And so um, I went and did the dilettantish thing and wrote the book about Kurt Flood um, with sort of basically using my savings from working at the law firm um, until that ran out and, and a book advance. And then I, I realized from, from writing and researching the Kurt Flood book, again, that what I, the most interesting facet of the book, at least for me, um, was researching the history, the, the history of how the lawsuit moved through the Supreme Court. And really the moment where it clicked for me was when I went to the Library of Congress's manuscript division and used Justice Blackmun's papers, which fortuitously had just opened as I began researching the book. And it was then I said, this is what I want to do. You know, this is the way I want to write about the Supreme Court. And um, you know, although I did look at journalism jobs covering the Supreme Court, um, I realized that if I wanted to write um, about the Supreme Court on a consistent basis and, and get paid for it, that the best way to do it would be a law professor. And so um, I went through the process of becoming a law professor. So uh, is the lesson of your career that you need a plan, or is it that you shouldn't have a plan? Well, I think it helps to have a plan. Um, I think I would have done a few things differently, you know, along the way. But I, I think one of the lessons is that you have to follow your passion, right? And you have to, you know, when you, I think especially um, whether it's undergraduate school or law school, um, you have to remember about why you went and, and what um, sort of makes you excited about, about going to school every day. Because you, if you can find the things in school that you're intellectually interested in, there's usually somewhere you can find something out there in the work world where you can sort of channel that passion and wake up every day thinking about, like I wake up every day thinking about the books I want to write, hmm. right? And every day thinking about um, where I am on a specific chapter in a book and how I'm going to execute that chapter. And my wife says it's annoying because I spend um, too much of my spare time writing my books, but um, for me to get to get paid to write and think is the greatest job in the world. Well, we're really glad that you wrote this one. Well, thanks. So thanks for coming to GW. Thanks, Marcus. It's been a pleasure.